John chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. That's John chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Let's pray together. Unmistakable, Father, has been the message to our hearts and to your ears in this worship service. I write these things to you that you might believe in the only Son of God and believing has life in His name. Life in the name. That's why we sing about the name. There isn't life anywhere else. Esteeming the name, cherishing the name, loving the name, trusting the name, seeing all that is implied in the name and embracing it with all of our hearts. That's why we worship the name Jesus and so I pray that as I try my best to unfold the truth concerning the new birth Jesus Christ would be magnified and this reality would happen in this room there are people here who are not born of God It is your work, and I pray that you would come in your mercy and do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have begun a series of messages starting last week, and um, we will butt into it in prayer week. We'll butt into it for... Martin Luther King weekend will butt into it for Pro-Life Sunday and we'll finish it sometime in the spring, probably. The Lord knows. But it'll go through Christmas at least and uh, it's very significant. Verse 3, chapter 3 of John. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. 
He's speaking to all of us there. There's, Nicodemus is not a special case. Like, oh, he is one kind of human that needs to be born again. There are other kind of humans who don't. This is a word for all of us. You must be born again, he says, or you won't see the kingdom of God. That is, you won't go to heaven. You won't be saved. You won't enter the kingdom. You'll go to hell. You go to hell if you're not born again. And the reason I even mention the word hell is because Nicodemus is called a Pharisee. And I know some things that Jesus said to Pharisees. You know them too. I'll read you two of them. He said, Matthew twenty-three fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. That's Jesus talking. He said in verse 33 of Matthew 23, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? Hell is that place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth cut off from God. Lake of fire, unquenchable flames, everlasting torment. This is Jesus. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus is almost the only one who mentions the word hell in the Bible. Eleven times. When Jesus looked this Pharisee in the eye and said, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom. He meant you'll go to hell, and so will we if we don't experience the new birth. In other words, this is heavy. This is really big. This is not marginal. We're not doing a series of messages on how to get along at work or how to have a better marriage, or we're just talking about you must be born again or you go to hell. That's what's at stake. And so it's heavy to me. Now, the first message last time was to simply say why we're talking about this and where we're going. And today's message is what happens in the new birth. And we'll finish it next week. So two messages on what happens. We could talk about why it's needed and how it happens and what are the effects of it. All that's coming later. Today and next Sunday, Lord willing, it's what happens. What is it? Now, before I do that, before I pose and try to answer that question, let me give you some more of my own heart about what I face as a preacher dealing with these infinitely weighty things. I feel unusually nervous as I take up this, this theme. I feel like I have in my hands people's everlasting destiny. I feel like I have tender little lambs who really are born again and they're so prone to doubt. And I have in my hands smiley-faced religious people who are not born again and they don't even feel anything about that. They just do their religion. They just come to church. And I don't want to hurt anybody. This is a very unsettling series. Let me give you, as I've reflected, why is this so unsettling to talk about the new birth? 
because I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of you. I feel it in my own bones. There are three reasons why this is such an unsettling topic. Number one, Jesus' teaching about the new birth confronts us with our hopeless spiritual, moral, and legal condition before God. Few doctrines, few teachings, few truths hit us with our helplessness, our hopelessness. Spiritually, it implies we're dead and we need life. Morally, it implies we're corrupt and selfish and rebellious and we need renewal. Legally, it implies we're guilty before the judge of the universe and will perish if something doesn't change. And when you get hit with that, apart from the new birth, you're spiritually dead, you're morally selfish and rebellious, and you're legally guilty, it's just unsettling. That's the first reason. The second reason is that this doctrine tells us that the new birth is something done to us, not something we do. And that multiplies the unsettling nature of it. We're Americans. We're just humans, but we're American humans. Americans take charge. Americans love the old poem from the 19th century, Invictus which ends, I am the captain of my soul. We don't, we don't like lamb-like talk. We don't like dependent talk, especially totally dependent talk, which is what the new birth implies. This is something that has to happen to me from God, from the outside, or it doesn't happen. I can't make it happen. I'm dead. That's very unsettling to a lot of people, including me. This is an unsettling teaching. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. He does it. We don't do it. Uh, Jesus, or John, in John 1.13 says to the children of God, You were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We don't will the new birth. The new birth creates our will for God. It's very unsettling to people to be told, My eternal destiny... My escape from my rebellion and my deadness and my guilt hangs on the work of another first. That's very unsettling. The third reason it's unsettling is because it confronts me with the absolute freedom of God. Apart from God, we're dead, selfish, rebellious, guilty. By nature, Paul says, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. That's who I am. I am so deeply anti-God in my soul without regeneration that I am fit 
for wrath. It's right, it's fitting that I, that I perish. By nature, children of wrath. And I don't have any power to change that. If it's going to be changed, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 have to happen. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and seated us at the right hand in the heavenly places. By grace, you have been saved. He made me alive when I was dead is my only hope and yours. That's very unsettling. So I feel like I have to approach this with such great care. I, I'm, I'm probably most concerned emotionally for the lambs among us who have very tender consciences. Because I know what you're going to feel when you hear these messages. You're going to go home and you're going to go to bed at night and you're going to say, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm just not sure. It's happened to me. That's what you're going to feel. Dozens of you are going to feel that way. And I'm, I want to preach this message. I, you, there's a razor's edge here that a pastor has to walk. On, on one side is, is genuinely born-again believers whose consciences are, are fragile and tender and they're prone to doubt. And, and I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to make life harder for anybody. I want this series of messages to come with tremendous assurance and joy and power and liberation and courage and confidence. And then on the other side, you've got all these nominal believers that live like the world and come to church every Sunday, don't have a spiritual bone in their bodies and sing these songs because the music is cool and they need to be jolted with supernatural awakening power or they perish. Now, how do you do that? How do I do that with one message every Sunday? How do I, how do I get my hand under these lambs and say, yes, and how do I get these people and spank them alive over here on the other side? And the answer is, I don't do it. God does it. And I'm just pleading with you again, like I did last week. Would you please pray for me? Would you pray for this church? These, this is a season of life in our church that could be extraordinary. People could put, in years to come, could put a name on it. They could call it Revival. Or awakening. Because there's just so many of you who are unspiritual. The veneer of religion has been laid over since you were little. And there's been no life. That could all change if God came. He uses the word, we're born again by the living and abiding word of God. And that's my job, to try to be an instrument of that living and abiding word. Here's today's question. That's all introduction. Here's today's question. What happens in the new birth? So in, in unfolding this, I said last time, I'll say it again. My hope is 
that unregenerate people would be quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and come alive in these services. And that most of you who are born again would discover what happened to you so that you love him more and you, you enjoy your standing in God and his presence in you and the life that you own. You'd enjoy it more. You'd be fuller and richer and deeper and stronger, and more courageous and more everything. When you know yourself for who you are in Christ, everything changes more and more. It's a progressive thing. And so don't, don't panic. Remember I said last time that you can be born again and never have heard of the term born again. <laughs> I just want to encourage you because there are so many different ways the Bible talks about how we get saved. And you might have heard one of them and that was enough and you got saved. And here I am telling you, you must be born again or you go to hell. And you say, well, I've never even heard of being born again. So don't panic at that point. Just listen carefully. And what I say, you'll say, well, yeah. Yes, that's what happened to me. I didn't know that's what you call it. That's what will happen. And now your soul will go bigger and you'll have more of the Bible talking about you and you'll be able to send your roots down into this as well as the other truths that you've enjoyed. I'm going to answer the question with three statements. What happened to you at your new birth? Three statements. Two of them we deal with today and one of them we deal with, Lord willing, Next Lord's Day. Number one, what happens in the new birth is not getting a new religion, but getting a new life. Life. So that's number one. Number two, what happens in the new birth is not merely uh, um, affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. Number three, what happens in the new birth is not the improvement of the old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature, a nature that is really you, forgiven and cleansed, and really new, being formed by the indwelling of the spirit giving his own shape to your soul and your life that number three is all for next week and if you wonder is he ever going to deal with the verse born of water and the spirit that's next week so if you wonder what does that mean born of water and the spirit that's next week so here we are we do two now number one what happens in the new birth is not getting a new religion, but getting a new life. Let's read the first three verses again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John, who, who wrote this chapter, 
did not have to tell us that the man that came by night was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. It would have worked perfect. In fact, it might have been, from our standpoint, more perfect had he just said, a man came to Jesus by night and said, Jesus, we see in you the work of God. And Jesus says to the man, uh, you must be born again. Then we'd all feel, oh, just men must be born again. But, but he goes out of his way and he tells us he's Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. What's the point? The point is, you don't need religion. You need life. That's the point. The Pharisees were the most rigorous of the Jewish religion. They knew their Bibles best. They were most disciplined in their spiritual efforts. I fast twice a week. I haven't committed adultery against my wife. I don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I don't steal. I do not kill. I am a Pharisee. I keep the law. God is supreme. So John goes out of his way to say that's who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we see God at work in you. And Jesus, just unlike so many of us, beating around the bush forever, just goes straight for the juggler and says, Nicodemus, you won't even see the kingdom of God if you're not born again. I mean, that's out of the blue. He just said something nice about Jesus. And out of the blue, Jesus just, you need to be born again. So uh, it seems pretty clear to me that uh, he's saying, Nicodemus, your extraordinary religious life profits you nothing. If you're not born again. You don't need religion. You need life. That life is what comes, right? When a baby is born, that's life. Life has come into the world. That's what needs to happen to you. You need to be born. A life needs to come into being in you that isn't there. You're, you're dead. Now, now Zach, uh, Nicodemus, you know what he says, how can I be crawl back up into my mother's womb? Oh, that's ridiculous. He is so out of touch. If he heard what I just said here, and he was standing here, he would say, excuse me? I'm alive! So Jesus must have a category for the living dead. Does he? Think of any texts? Luke 9, verse 60, man comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their dead. Hmm. So there are dead who need to be buried, and there are dead who bury them. 
That's a category of human being in, in Jesus' mind. Dead, living people. Living, dead people. Parable of the prodigal son. I love it, don't you? And at the end, the father's tears running down his face. He's talking to the older brother. He's talking to a Pharisee. And he says, Don't you come into the party? If you just stand out there boasting in your service to me for all these years, would you come into the party? Your son is home. My son is home. My son who was dead is alive. So he's got a category for living dead people. So he would look at Nicodemus and say, you just don't get it, Nicodemus. The reason you don't get it is because you're dead. Dead people can't get what I'm saying. You need life. You don't need more religion. You don't need to be a better Catholic or Baptist. It won't do you any good to be a better Lutheran or Pentecostal or Methodist or Presbyterian. You need life that you don't have. And it comes from a birth. It comes into being. That's number one. Number two. What happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. And all I'm doing here is adding to the first one the little word supernatural in front of the life. I'm just expanding on the nature of the life that you're given. Of course, it's not physical life. You already have that. It's supernatural life. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus sees in Jesus genuine divine activity. Jesus is from God. He says that. To which Jesus does not respond, Nicodemus, I wish everybody in Palestine could see what you see. He doesn't say that. Even though what Nicodemus just said is gloriously true. He just passes right under it and says, seeing in me the supernatural is not the key to the kingdom. Experiencing the supernatural in you is the key to the kingdom. That's what he's saying. I have ambivalent feelings about signs and wonders, right? We've walked through decades of com contemplation about these things at Bethlehem. I believe in signs and wonders. God heals the sick. God drives out demons. God can raise the dead. He could do it today if he wanted to do it. God puts back together impossible marriages and makes them whole. God does wonders in our day, and we should pray for them. But here's my ambivalence. How many people see them? are amazed by them, attribute them to Jesus, and would still hear the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. You must be born again, and you're not. Here's the reason. 
It takes no new nature, no new life to be amazed at signs and wonders. None. Ordinary people, lost and hell-bound, are amazed when somebody is made well, miraculously. They're amazed when some circumstance in life is turned right around by the intervention of God. They're amazed when there's a demonism thing and a person is flopping around on the floor like a fish. And somebody says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And they go totally limp and get up with a totally new facial. That's happened. I've been there. You don't have to be born again to be amazed at that. <laughs> You don't have to be born again to say that's of God. How do I know that? Because the demon said to Jesus, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You see why I'm ambivalent? May God grant signs and wonders to Bethlehem. Once we have in place the deep roots of the new birth so that we're not distracted by the phenomena of the signs and wonders, but always see right through them to the glory of Jesus, which you can't see apart from the new birth. Oh, we could go on here. This is when, when he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus says, I'm glad you see that. No, you need to be born again. I just want to say that over all fascination with signs and wonders. Is your interest in the miraculous because it points you to the name, the sweetest name on earth, so that if no miracles happen in your life, he would be there as your treasure and your all. Or, if you do not get rescued from this situation by a miracle, you're out of here. Which is it? And then you know a little more about whether you're born again or not. I hope you hear both and right now. Yes to signs and wonders and no to the love of signs and wonders in and of themselves, which is apparently what Jesus saw in Nicodemus. What Nicodemus needed was to be born again supernaturally. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh, mom, dad, seed sown, conception, baby comes, just like mom and dad. It's uh, participating in that humanity. Spirit, seed sown by the word of God, new life comes into existence, participates in the divine reality. There's, there's a miracle here. This is supernatural. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit. The Spirit is God. God is supernatural. The birth, therefore, is supernatural, born of the Spirit. 
The new birth is not turning over a new leaf. The new birth is not waking up in the middle of the night when you've been really depressed and discouraged and crying out to your crystals and feeling a great peace come over you and knowing something amazing has happened and you've been born again. People ha- that, those things happen. People in all religions everywhere have experiences that are phenomenal. And they're not new birth. New birth comes by the spirit of the living God, not by ecstasies from other sources. So here are my two answers so far. One, what happens in the new birth is not getting a new religion or getting a hyped up religion, but getting a new life through birth, spiritual birth. And secondly, what happens in regeneration or in the new birth is not seeing in Jesus the supernatural merely, you've got to do that, but rather experiencing the supernatural in here. The life that's given is given by the Spirit of God and it is supernaturally given and produces something above nature that the resources of this universe cannot do. God alone can do it. Now, let me close by reflecting on a crucial connection between being born again by the Spirit and having eternal life through Jesus. Born again by the Spirit, verse 6, verse 8, having eternal life, that's the same life. Eternal life is the new miraculous life. How do those relate to each other? Eternal life through Jesus, new birth and life that comes through the Spirit. The reason I'm going to go here for a few minutes as we draw this to a close is because I'm deeply convinced that the Holy Spirit in this room right now has a bent to glorify the Son, to glorify the Son, Jesus, not himself. I get that from John 16, 14. I will send the Spirit and he will glorify me, Jesus said. The reason the Spirit is here in this room is to awaken hearts to see Christ for who he is and cause you to make much of him and love him and delight in him and trust him and admire him and follow him and obey him and die for him. That's why the Holy Spirit's here, to get Jesus up big in your heart. So if I don't lift him up, I think the Holy Spirit just hangs back. If I be lifted up, I will draw. That's the work of the Spirit. So if if I end the sermon here, Jesus has been doing some talking, but the Spirit is the one who's giving life. And so at this point in my message, Jesus could just be a good, better rabbi, informing this other rabbi what he's missing. And and I think the Holy Spirit would say, finish it! (laughs) Read the rest of the book! Read the rest of the chapter. I think that's so. I don't want the Holy Spirit to say that to me. (laughs) He already did. So let's take a few minutes. 
John chapter 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. That's just repeating chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 8. It is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. So let us praise the Holy Spirit. Let us be thankful for the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. However, you've all read, most of you, the Gospel of John, and you know another thing about life in this Gospel. You know, in fact, I'll just do a little quiz here and let you all test yourselves whether you know this. You fill in the blank, okay? I, Jesus said, am the way, the truth, and the... He is life. There's no life but Christ. There's no life anywhere but being attached to Christ. So yes, we've got this one truth. The Spirit gives life. And then we've got this other set of truths in John. Jesus is life. And we've got to bring these together. Here's, here's the next one. You fill in the blank. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So we eat him, we have life. And yet it says the Spirit gives life. Here's the third one. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So you got these three verses and goodness knows how many others in the Gospel of John that say... There's no life apart from Jesus. He is life. If you don't get connected with Jesus, if you're not united with Jesus, you're not going to have any life. The very life that Nicodemus doesn't have. So, uh, how shall we put them together? Well, here's my simple statement. The Holy Spirit gives life by connecting us to Jesus. Gloriously mysterious. Amazingly simple. The way the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again is by uniting us to the vine. I am the vine. You are the and what flows from the vine to the branches? Life. And yet we're not connected. We're lost. We're dead. There's no life in us. Where is life? It's in Jesus. The Spirit loves to magnify Jesus. How does he magnify Jesus? At root, he gets us connected to Jesus. He, he draws us into union with Christ where there's life. That's the, the surgical, divine, objective spiritual, supernatural reality. And then, here's the, here's the amazing thing. At the experiential level, the conscious level, all that's happening by God down here. At the, at the conscious level, how do we experience that? We experience it because wherever there is life, there is faith. In Jesus. Everywhere life is awakened, the first experience is faith. 
Faith is the cry of the newborn baby. You spank that baby, wah, 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 means trust, trust you. There is no life where there's no faith, and there is no faith where there's no life. Never Bethlehem. Never, never, never separate the new birth from faith in Jesus. From God's side, we are united to Christ miraculously by the new birth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. From our side, we experience this union through faith in Jesus. Let me just read you a couple of verses from the first epistle to show you the connection. 1 John 5.11, this is the testimony... No, I'm going to read that second. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God, well, there's new birth, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. <laughs> everyone born deep down objective spiritual reality triumphs over the worldly powers that threaten to destroy you. And then he says, this is the victory that overcomes those powers. Your faith, he will not let them be separated. He puts them right together. Because wherever there is this powerful working of the Holy Spirit, there is the experiencing of it through faith. Here's the other one, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Now that's the new birth. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So life is in the Son of God. And if you have the Son, if you receive the Son, if the Son is your life, you have life. And yet he also says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. You must be born of the Spirit. So I conclude, the new birth, in the new birth, the Holy Spirit supernaturally gives us new spiritual life by connecting us with Jesus through faith. Never, Bethlehem, separate these two verses in John 3. Verse 3 and verse 36. Verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Because wherever the new birth is, there is faith. And wherever genuine faith is, there is the new birth. And they're never separated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Oh, how I pray that in these days, by the living and abiding word of God, which I attempt to express through my mouth, you would cause people to be born again and thus awaken faith. That you would cause people to believe and thus give expression to the life that is in them. Dear God, don't leave us to ourselves. Christianity is not a religion mainly. It's a life mainly. And so please, we say as a church, he who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son does not have life. And we get the Son deeply, profoundly, by the work of the Spirit uniting us to the Son as the Son is lifted up in the living and abiding Word. And that baby says, Oh, Jesus, my life. Oh, Jesus, my Savior. Oh, Jesus, my Lord. Oh, Jesus, my treasure. That's what the baby says. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first by grace believed.